according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 23. I'm looking ahead to the verses as we're looking at verses 15 and 16 where we left off last week and trying to kind of charted out down through verse 35 at the end of the chapter. Not sure where we're going to leave off. And uh, remember we put the this series gets put on hold for a year. Um, ideally it'd be super sweet to get to the end of chapter 24, but that's not going to happen. So <laughs> we'll just see. Whatever the Lord wants to do. Before we do get started this morning though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thankful for grace and truth, rejoicing in your faithfulness, Father, the faithfulness that you manifest every time that we open the Word of God. I thank you for the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit, the one who truly is our teacher here this morning. We ask for that uh, that faithful ministry to bless us once again, to open our eyes, open our ears, and soften our hearts. We thank you and praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so Proverbs 23, remember we are working our way through the sayings of the wise. And uh, this is really uh, a segment of the book of Proverbs that began back in chapter 22. And uh, there's 30 sayings of the wise as we outline these verses and as we try to uh, evaluate the, the structure of the Hebrew poetry here. But 30 statements of the wise that take us down through uh, chapter 24 and verse 22. That will wrap up the 30th of these 30 sayings of the wise. And then when we get that far and we take a look at uh, chapter 24 and verse 23, we find out these also are the sayings of the wise. And so we're not really done. Once we get through the 30, there's actually six more to go um, beyond the 30 that gets us down to the end of chapter 24. All right, and so that's just how some of the uh, the canonicity has been, or the the canonical version of Proverbs has been compiled and edited and placed in this particular order. And then uh, when we get to chapter twenty-five, we find a collection of proverbs that are Solomon's proverbs, but they were not canonical; they were not placed in the canon until the days of Hezekiah, and that gets uh, that gets us into the introduction there to chapter twenty-five. All right. So for today, as we're looking at this, I think I left off with, let's see, 0.7, 0.8, 0.9. We were discussing corporal punishment with words of the wise number 11, and that came out of Proverbs 23, verses 13 and 14. Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with a rod, he will not die. You shall strike him with a rod and rescue his soul from Sheol. And the benefit and uh, the recognition through these passages is such that we can identify that there is a physical side to the corporal discipline, but there's also a spiritual side to the corporal discipline. We're not just administering to, to the body when we spank the backside, we're actually training the soul, which is what uh, ultimately matters related to the Christian walk. And so we dealt with those issues there. We moved on to main point eight as we looked at rescuing, let's see, words of the wise number 12, and the fellowship that we should have as adults, adult fathers and adult sons, adult mothers and adult daughters. 
The blessing we have in fellowship of Bible doctrine when we have joy in mutually communicated divine wisdom. Mutually communicated divine wisdom. My son, if your heart is wise, my own heart will also be glad. We have, uh, we have to recognize, again, we're dealing with this section here. Once we pass chapter 9, we're dealing with adults. We're dealing with adult wisdom. This is personal and public wisdom. Okay? The first nine chapters is parental wisdom, whereby you have a lot of parental uh, leadership over the, the uh, bringing up of the children. And, and really this phrase, my son, is much more common in those first nine chapters and almost non-existent after chapter 10. The fact that it's employed here becomes significant. We start to observe this is the exception to the rule for this portion of, uh, of the book of Proverbs. And so it's not just my son like we had in the early chapters where you have a father bringing up a a juvenile, bringing up a child. This is an adult son and an adult father that are able now to have the, uh, the fellowship that they can have in adult capacity. And so the blessing that we have in multiple generations that are worshiping the Lord, we talked about that. Why is it? Well, let me finish reading these verses, 15 and 16. My son, if your heart is wise, my own heart also will be glad, and my inmost being will rejoice when your lips speak what is right. And so there is a mutual reciprocal fellowship in doctrine. And when the the children are able to fellowship with an adult capacity that the father is able to rejoice in, then there is no greater blessing than this. As 3 John 3 says, that I have no greater joy than to see my children walking in the truth. I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth, that is how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in truth. And this is universal. This is a blessing for any believer of any stewardship, not just the church age, but in Israel, in the Gentiles, the the opportunity we have to train up that next generation and uh, to make sure they're solid on doctrine so they can train up the generation after them. I find it very noteworthy that the corporate worship requires three generations in Genesis chapter 4. So Adam gives birth to Seth. To Seth also a son was born. He called his name Enosh. Then once there are three generations in the world, from Adam to Seth to Enosh, at that point we're told, then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. We begin, once there are three generations, we then begin to have the capacity for humanity then to have a corporate worship function that they couldn't have with only two generations, or they couldn't have with only one generation, all right? You say, well, what was stopping Adam and Eve from calling upon the name of the Lord? Or what was stopping Adam and Seth as a father and son from calling upon the name of the Lord? Well, this verse is highlighting the fact that it's the arrival of Enosh, And at that time is when men, plural, humanity, corporate humanity, began to call upon the name of the Lord. There's a function you can do, okay? And I'm not trying, I'm not denigrating, I'm not minimizing, I'm not saying there's no value in a husband and a wife that have marital devotions or anything of that nature, or there's nothing wrong with parents and children. You you should be training your children to memorize scripture and to learn learn things. Nothing at all wrong with, with family devotions, nothing at all wrong with, with uh, marital devotions, all of that is, is acceptable. But calling upon the name of the Lord in, in a corporate function, such as a, like in the church age, Austin Bible Church or any 
church age um, function, having that third generation provides a dimension that's absent in those other examples. Okay, and and I think it does make a difference if in fact you have a son who has also now become a father, and because this is what we're doing as we portray the begetter and the begotten one. It's our blessing in humanity to do this. Angels can't do this, right? Angels, the, you know, the highest ranking angels are called the Elim and the Beneha Elohim, the gods and the sons of God. But even the angels that are called sons are created sons. They're not begotten sons. And so the huge difference between humanity and angelity is that, that exact function that we have in order to be begetters and begotten ones. And that's, uh, that's an amazing glory. All right. And so uh, we have the, uh, the issue there. Genesis uh, 18 and verse 19, the fact that Abraham was chosen that, so that he may command his children and his household after him. And so that's not just the immediate next generation, but that includes all subsequent generations. He is the head of the uh, Abrahamic house the descendants of of Israel that are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so forth. We have multiple generations in view there. Deuteronomy 4, verses 9 and 10. Give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen. Remember, this is now not, no longer is this the Exodus generation. This is now the wilderness generation, the the children of the Exodus generation. Anybody that was over 20 when they walked through the Red Sea, they're not around. God put them under judgment. They were not allowed to enter into the promised land. And so in Deuteronomy now, it's the next generation that's receiving the, the, uh, the law. So do not forget the things which your eyes have seen and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and to your grandsons. It goes to the second, to the third generation. And we can appreciate that. Isaiah 1, verses 2 and 3. (laughs) Listen, O heavens and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. The function for procreation is not just to have babies. Okay? We are communicating the glory of God to the next generation, to the next generation, to the next generation. We are bringing them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. If all we're doing, if, if, if the totality of our understanding for the mandate is be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Animals can do that. We are here to glorify God the Father and God the Son, and we are here to, to, uh, to bring up that next generation in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Otherwise, we're no better than the ox and the donkey and the issues there. All right, well, let's move on to verses 17 and 18 then. Do not envy sinners. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. And I find this interesting. So do not envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord for eternity. You know, the fear of the Lord doesn't stop when we die. <laughs> the fear of the Lord continues. We, we will always fear the Lord in the resurrection, in, you know, in this life and the next. Um, but this idea of envying sinners, and in the way that it's phrased as well, do not let your heart envy sinners. And that's a curious thing too, as if the heart is something different inside of us, but we're still accountable. We, we, we don't let it do what it wants to do when it wants to defy God. 
we have to put it right back where it belongs. If it starts to wander, then we grab it and we set it right back. We discuss the nature of positioning the heart, positioning the ears in uh, some of these uh, earlier verses where you have to apply, in verse 12, apply your heart to discipline and your ears to words of knowledge. That means you are physically, you know, not physically, but you're as if you were picking up and setting, right? So if your heart starts to wander away, just grab it and put it back. Set your heart there. And the same thing with your ears. If your ears start to follow somebody else, <laughs> if you have the itchy ears that start to, start to depart to the left or to the right, just grab hold of those ears and put them back in the Word of God where they belong. So, um, yeah, that imperative in verse 12, to apply your heart, to apply your ears. And I think we have uh, kind of a similar expression here. Do not let your heart envy sinners. If it starts to do that, don't be shocked because the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We have this sick heart. And uh, thankfully, because we're believers, now we have a new heart. So um, keep control over it, as we would say. Do not envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord for all eternity. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. There is a future and your hope will not be cut off. This is the verse I prefer to go to instead of the one in in Jeremiah that everybody points to, right? That I know my plans I have for you, plans for your prosperity and not for your your hurt, uh, that you may have a future and you may have a hope. I think far too often... Uh, folks take a, a prophetic message for Israel as delivered by the prophet Jeremiah and they think it applies to them in the church age or that it applies to them personally and it does not. The best they can do is make a secondary application from it and the reason why you can make a secondary application from it is because of this text and other passages like this that demonstrate our position as believers means we are the object of God's uh, future blessing. There is a future and you're part of it. <laughs> your hope will not be cut off. It's a marvelous eternal security text. If you are in the Lord, if you are saved, then you are part of this eternal future that God has designed us for. If you are not saved, <clears throat> you get a different destiny. Okay, and it's the lake of fire for all eternity. And we think of that as a future only because I guess in our timelines we have these concepts of past, present, and future, and we kind of think linearly in terms of time. But, but don't think of future here in terms of time. Think of future here in terms of blessing and hope and joy and, and all the things that, that we have to look forward to in glory. We have a future. The unbeliever does not have a future. It does not exist for the unbeliever. They have a destiny. They don't have a future. Not the way that the words are being used here. Okay, And I think we want to try to keep it as, uh, as biblical as we can on that. So, your hope will not be cut off. Let's take a look at Proverbs 3.31. Nope. Proverbs. There we go. Because this is something that was trained early. This is something part of parental discipline. Um, it's, it's good if in childhood you can get uh, young people to start recognizing envy for what it is, coveting for what it is. You can start to ground them in um, the, 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 the basic commands, right? The Ten Commandments, other commands. Do not envy a man of violence. Do not choose any of his ways. For the devious are an abomination to the Lord, and he is, but he is intimate with the upright. 
And that's something, of course, it's Proverbs 3, so it's, it's designed for childhood, it's designed for the youngest of believers to, to begin to learn. And you get those patterns established early. You start to learn what does it mean to covet? What does it mean to envy? What does it mean to look at others? And, and um, I think it's useful. I think it's useful training, even from childhood on up, to, to demonstrate that there's a difference between believers and unbelievers. There's a difference between the righteous and the unrighteous. And, uh, you know, kids on the playground may have, uh, you know, different perspectives. And uh, <clears throat> especially when you're going to school and you've got classmates that aren't Christians, they aren't saved. And so right from the youngest of ages, children can be trained to recognize that we are a Christian family, that we have biblical values, that we function in a way that's going to be different from how other people may function or how their children may, may be raised. I think also back in chapter 3 when we taught this, and I'd have to go back and look at those notes, but the idea of envying a man of violence, who would do that? Why would you envy a violent man? Okay, well the carnal mind has a lot of reasons to envy the violent man. Uh, the violent man tends to get what he wants and he takes what he wants. And, and in a lot of respects, the, the carnal mindedness of an unbeliever or a carnal believer is, is very much in tune with this fallen world where um, you do what you get away with and might makes right and who's going to stop me? And, and um, you know, if, if violence can achieve your aim, well then, you know, too bad for the other guy because might makes right and here we go. And that's the, the mindset of this fallen world. It's the mindset and sadly carnal believers uh, adopt that same mindset. So don't do that. Don't envy it and don't choose any of his ways. The mental attitude precedes the, the action. For the devious are an abomination of the Lord, but he is intimate with the upright. And this is what it comes down to. And maybe they want to run with the crowd. Maybe they want to. There's an appeal in that. I get that. That's why there's so many gangs in our, in our world today. These hoodlums roam in the streets. They don't have earthly fathers. They don't have discipline in their lives. But the gang provides them a structure, provides them an authority structure, provides them a, and it's pretty brutal, uh, where the big dogs run the show and the little dogs just kind of follow along like a pack mentality. But the idea, uh, they have a, it's, it's strange, they do have a form of intimacy in that because they have a form of belonging. They have a form of identification and, and they, they will fight for their gang against the rival gangs and the other things that, that happen there. Humanity is designed to be relational and that's the thing. And so Satan can provide for that and a form of intimacy that uh, doesn't glorify Christ, but you see it for what it is. All right, so um, this is a command that's been given from childhood, but it has to be refreshed from time to time throughout adult life. And uh, I think that's why we see it refreshed here as an adult father is speaking to his adult son. Don't be envying those sinners, but living in the fear of the Lord for all eternity. This is what we're called to do. And uh, so it's a good reminder from time to time. It's going to be a feature again when we get into chapter 24. It's going to come up again, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 24. So we're not quite there and probably, I'm guessing, we won't get there until after the through the Bible year. Do not be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them, for their minds devise violence and their lips talk of trouble. So they actually get more inventive in their carnality. They get more inventive in their darkness. And, um, you know, there, there is a progression. There is a growth that happens there with respect to these things. There's a big truck coming in. I don't know why. All right. I don't know if you want to check that out or...
Yeah. Just keeping an eye on things. Knowing the generation in which we live. Because here we are, we're teaching on evil and wouldn't put it past Satan to give us an, oh there they go, give us an illustration. But see, here's the thing. Believers can talk themselves into all kinds of evil. Okay? They can talk themselves into all kinds of evil and they can justify it. And they can say, yeah, but I have good intentions. And uh, that, oh, it's only this one time. Or, oh, it's only for a short period of time. As if somehow God is going to sanction the evil that they're doing as long as it's limited or as long as, you know, they, they have a greater good that they're trying to achieve in the long run. And that's not how God operates. And that's not what we're permitted to do in the will of God. Remember, we have to do the right thing in the right way for the right reasons or it's not gold, silver, and precious stones as God would, would account it to be. You know, and I think Psalm 37 is the basis for all of these Proverbs. Uh, so many of the Proverbs that we look at actually have their origin in Davidic uh, Psalms. And uh, you realize that uh, Solomon is reflecting the, the divine viewpoint that David gave him and then processing into his, into his wisdom format in the Proverbs. I'm going to limit this morning to just verses 1 through 11, but really you could take all 40 verses and in, in, in Psalm 37, and you can see this principle played again and again and again and again. Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. And you know, sometimes you know that, but you don't see that. And sometimes it's hard. You wonder, why are the wicked prospering? Why you know, they, they don't seem to be withering as quickly as I want them to wither. They're getting away with it longer than I think they should get away with it. Why is that? Why does King Manasseh get a 55-year reign? That, that just seems wrong. Well, at the end of that reign, he actually has a repentance. And had God wiped him out sooner, like when you and I would have wiped him out, then he would have never gotten to that 55th year. He would have never gotten to that point of repentance. And of course, God knows these things. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. See, and this is, these are the wonderful promises, but you have to be living in the fear of the Lord for eternity. You can't be envying the sinners. And uh, the desires of your heart can't be the envying of sinners. God's not going to give you any of that. But if you're delighting yourself in the Lord, then the, the desires of your heart are going to be shaped by divine viewpoint. They're going to be shaped by, by His character. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him. He will do it. So this is a formula for just the Christian way of life. And it applies across all stewardships. It was true for Israel. It's true for us in the church. It was true you know, even before the law. This would be a, a pattern for Gentile believers before, uh, before the Jewish age. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Everything we're living here and now will have a manifestation in glory. That there will be reward waiting for us in the resurrection. Job had a confidence. He said, I know that my Redeemer lives. Job had a confidence that his reward would be waiting for him when he took a stand upon the earth. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. So the the key is, I think, that we we have to stop thinking so limited just in terms of time, just in terms of the here and now. 
And that's if we, if we want to be validated here and now, then we might be set up for a lot of disappointment. Because the validation is eternal. The validation is not in the here and now. This life is frequently not fair. This life frequently has a lot of undeserved suffering and a lot of uh, other issues that happen. Are we going to stay faithful unto death? That's the, that's the question that gets asked. So rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of Him who prospers in His way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Again, if all you can do is just get wrapped up in the, in the, the temporal issues of the here and now, and it just starts to seem like, like uh, the Christians are getting, getting hosed and the, and the uh, unbelievers seem to be getting over big time, okay, well, stop thinking in temporal terms. Stop thinking in the here and now. Stop being so short-sighted. Just live daily for the glory of Jesus Christ and let Him work that out. And if you have to wait until the, the judgment seat of Christ to see some kind of recompense, big deal. Big deal. Why? I mean, waiting until the, the judgment seat of Christ, <clears throat> we, why, why do we have a problem with that? Why do we want some kind of recompense prior to that? <coughs> All right. <coughs> so, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Well, how long do I have to wait? <laughs> I don't have time for that. I'm tired of waiting. God tells us to wait, okay? 60 years, 80 years, 100 years. What is that compared to eternity? Whatever length of time we have on this earth, it's a drop in the bucket. It's nothing compared to eternity. Sarah waited 90 years to have a baby. You know, why are we so short-sighted in the things that we think, well, I want the recompense now. I want to see the wicked get it, and I want, I want the wicked to see me blessed. I want the wicked to see, ooh, look at that. Look at that. See, uh, Pastor Bob's faithful. He's been in the Word of God. He's teaching his flock. I want the wicked to see that that's an awesome thing. Well, he may not see it until the great white throne. Okay? Do I have patience for that? I, I need to be mindful of how God functions and how God operates. And, and really, if I want the wicked to see me enjoying good things, why do I care? Why is he looking at me enjoying good things? He should be looking at the Lord. <laughs> he, should be, he should be looking to his Savior and hopefully getting saved. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It will only lead to evil doing. And this I think, this is more than just anger in general. I think this is building upon verse 7. The, the anger is happening. It's, it's built on the fretting. It's happening because I'm, I'm too subjective. I'm looking at other people. And it's making me mad when I see that they're getting away with what they're getting away with. It's making me mad when I see that, man, they're making money hand over fist and they got this easy life and things are going great for them. And it's making me mad because they're not getting, uh, you know, they're not getting blasted for their sin. God says, stop that. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it leads only to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Well, how long is that going to take? When's that going to happen? And, and start to understand something here. David was writing this a thousand years B.C. that those who wait for the Lord will inherit the land. And then a thousand years later, Jesus is still talking about someday the meek will inherit the earth. So if David was saying this, and then a thousand years later, Jesus is saying this, and then 2,000 years after Jesus, we're still saying this, 
We're still talking about the kingdom's not here yet. Recompense is still future. We are waiting for recompense, and God is the God of recompense. But it's not in the here and now. Okay? And as impatient as we get, we have to, we have to humble ourselves and, and understand that God is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness. But He's patient. A whole lot more patient than us. So those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. <laughs> okay? And we're like the kids in the back seat saying, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And the parents are just frustrated with the kids in the back seat and saying, oh, you know, we'll get there when we get there. We're not there yet. And here's David, a thousand years before Christ, saying, yet a little while. And then Jesus comes along and says, behold, I come quickly. Right? And that was, you know, a thousand years from David to Jesus, two thousand years from Jesus to us. And it's still just a little while. It's only been a couple of days. So yet in a little while the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place and he will not be there. And this, uh, of course, we can think of the, the millennium that starts only with believers and then we can think of the fullness of time that not only starts only with believers but finishes only with believers. We've got a thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ and no more believers, no more sin, no more death. They are all gone in the lake of fire. You will look carefully for his place and he will not be or he will not be there. He is extra dimensionally gone in the lake of fire for all eternity. And so is Satan and so is every fallen angel, every demon. They are sealed off in the lake of fire for all eternity. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. If you want to be a prosperity preacher, okay, be a prosperity preacher, but make sure your theology is adjusted correctly. This is the, uh, the abundant eternal prosperity after the great white throne. The abundant eternal prosperity that is the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. I don't know about you, but according to his promise, I, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And if you want to have some kind of abundant prosperity prior to that, good luck. It's not biblical. Okay? That's what we have. Alright, so that's the first 11 verses of Psalm 37. If you really want to, you can take it far beyond that. You can even take it all the way down to the end of the chapter and take all of Psalm 37 in its totality. And you can start seeing... Okay, let's do it. <laughs> I think it's worthwhile. Let's do it. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. This has always been the case. Always has been, always will be right up to the end of the millennium. Right up until the Gog-Magog revolt at the end of the millennium. This will only end when there is no more sin, no more death. When there is no more wicked. So this has been the case since Adam and Eve. It's been the case all through the Gentiles, all through Israel and their stewardship, all through the church age. If anything, the church age is the worst that there's ever been. Because this is the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. This is where Satan has demanded permission to sift like wheat. And God gives that permission because we have the, the armor that we have. So the wicked are plotting, gnashing at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him. He sees his day coming. The Father who sits in the heavens is laughing. We should be laughing. Let's just laugh with our Father. Because his day is coming. It may not be this day, but it's coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy, to slay those who are upright in conduct. 
but the sword will enter their own heart and their bows will be broken. Okay? God is the God of recompense. He does protect His own. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. Let's just keep things in perspective. And if we have financial uh, humility, if we have uh, some, um, some you know, thin, lean years and whatnot, if, we were, if the widow giving her two mites, praise God. Because eternally, on the eternal scale, the uh, better is little of the righteous than the abundance of, of the wicked. And uh, I think we understand that. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord sustains the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their inheritance will be forever. Again, the days of the righteous. How many is that? And God knows. And whatever it is, it's just like I say, it's a drop in the bucket. It flies by like that. And uh, for folks that are grieving the departure of their loved ones that are in glory, um, you know, we're not far behind. (laughs) We're going to be right there with them before we know it that uh, they just had their entrance into glory a little bit sooner than we did, but before we know it, we're going to be right there with them. And these, these days are so short, but the consequences are so eternal. The inheritance will be forever. They will not be ashamed in the time of evil, and in the days of famine they will have abundance. So yeah, interesting days in which we live. Guess what? God's still in charge. I'm thankful to be saved by His grace. The wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord will be like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. The wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious and gives. Those blessed by Him will inherit the land. Those cursed by Him will be cut off. The day is coming. And and we we get this. We we study this eschatologically. We study this in terms of the end of the tribulation and the first, uh, the introduction of of the kingdom with the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. There is a a cutting off of the wicked. There is the uh, the sheep and goat judgment. Only the sheep are coming into the kingdom. The goats are going to hell. Same thing with the wilderness judgment of Israel. It's the, the true, not all Israel is Israel. The true believers, those that are born again, they, God enters into judgment with them and they get to march up the holy highway and enter into, enter into the, the millennial kingdom. The unbelievers, they're left behind. They're, they're judged in the wilderness. He, it says he purges the rebels in Ezekiel chapter 20. So whether it's Jews or Gentiles, no unbeliever that survives the tribulation is going to survive the judgment of Jesus Christ and enter into the millennium. Only born-again believers enter the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Those blessed by Him will inherit the land. Those cursed by Him will be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord and He delights in His way. How do we handle this poetry? He delights in His way. That's the, um, I think, I don't mind capitalizing the he there, that is the Lord. He, the Lord delights in his way. If he's put a path in front of you, that's the path he takes delight in. Walk with the Lord, run with endurance the race that's set before you. God's got this whole thing lined up. He saved you, you're saved in the good works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is what God has always been doing for believers of every stewardship. That's why we acknowledge him in all our ways. He will make our path straight. The steps of a man are established by the Lord. So walk those steps. Walk the walk that He puts in front of you. He delights in His way. He's thrilled with what He's designed. And uh, He's impressed with what He's designed. 
God's plan is perfect, absolutely good and perfect and wise. And uh, if we walk in His path, that's what He's called us to do. So He delights in His way. When He falls, He will not be hurled headlong because the Lord is the one who holds His hand. How, what a blessing is this? It's like teaching a toddler how to walk. Okay, And they're not very steady on their feet, are they? Watching some of these on Sunday morning, and they just toddle around and they trip and they fall. You know, But here, this is the imagery that God uses. I love this. God uses this. So if, if God is holding your hand while you're walking, and you're just the clueless toddler walking around, and you, you stumble, okay, the fact that God is holding your hand means that you don't face plant on the pavement. Okay? It means that you're just kind of hanging there, you know, dangling. And he's able to just to hold on, right? Kind of pick you up and set you back on your feet again, get you steady, and then continue on. Continue on. It's a, it's a beautiful picture. I love this. The Lord is the one who holds his hand. I have been young and now I am old, <laughs> yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken. Isn't that beautiful? You know, you look back and you see any believer that's been walking with the Lord all their life and they look back, do they have any regrets? Are they disappointed? Do they, do they, do they testify at the end of their life, man, I wasted my whole life serving God? Okay. Yet I've not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. All day long he is gracious and lends and his descendants are a blessing. The longer you spend your lifetime in doctrine, spend your lifetime in the word of God and serving others. And you can look back with, with thankfulness that God is so faithful. Depart from evil and do good so you will abide forever. And this is, uh, like, I get, like I said, this, is, this transcends all stewardships, transcends all dispensations. We can readily adapt this in the church age just as readily as believers in the Old Testament could live this out in, uh, you know, before the church age. For the Lord loves justice. He does not forsake His godly ones. They are preserved forever but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. Okay, Again, walk your walk in this life because the next one is what we're preparing for. The next one is the one the unbeliever doesn't have. So quit worrying about what they're doing and just keep your eyes fixed on the Lord and keep walking right. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. We're looking for glory. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law of God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked spies upon the righteous and seeks to kill him. Like I say, almost every verse in this psalm is, is pointed to this issue. That we are saved by grace through faith. We're walking accordingly. We have a future. The wicked, no, not at all. The wicked spies upon the righteous, seeks to kill him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand or let him be condemned when he is judged. Wait for the Lord and keep His way. He will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. So again, you know, in any believer like this, David or Solomon or any believer in the Old Testament, if they start to grow impatient, if they start to want to see the the promises come true today, they've missed the point. The point is we have an eternal destiny. God is taking us to an eternal kingdom, taking us to an eternal day. And, and what we're living here in time is just the day-by-day preparation to get there. I have seen a wicked, violent man spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in its native soil. Then he passed away, and lo, he was no more. I sought for him, but he could not be found. 
<laughs> okay? if, if that's all you're doing is looking at this life, mark the blameless man and behold the upright, for the man of peace will have a posterity, but the transgressors will be altogether destroyed. The posterity of the wicked will be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. Again, Proverbs addresses this. I think so much of the Proverbs comes, again, from the Davidic Psalms that are adapted by Solomon for proverbial uh, wisdom presentation. Talk about a legacy. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. All right, so that's the totality of Psalm 37. But hopefully we can see, we can see how these psalms form the basis for the Proverbs. The psalms form the basis for what Solomon will then take and and crystallize in the proverbial format. The saved and the lost have an eternal contrast which should motivate a temporal contrast here and now. The saved, this is kind of the second point I'm going to make here from Uh, Proverbs 23. The saved and the lost have an eternal contrast. Not just how we're living marks us as being different, but where we're going is totally different. And it's where we're going that should shape what we're doing here and now. Does that make sense? The saved and the lost have an eternal contrast. And maybe this is worth mentioning. Let me come back to Proverbs 23 and, and spell this out some more. Because the, the command up front maybe grabs our attention. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. So that's, those are imperatives. That's commanding believers how to live and what to do and how to think and, and how we function. Okay? So that's different. We're not like them. We're living the way that we should be living in the fear of the Lord. They're not. But if we stop there, if we just if we just limit verse 17 to sit by itself and not have verse 18 connected to it, I think it's a, it's a, it's a disservice to spirituality. It's a disservice to our Christian walk. We're not just, we're not just obeying God and, and, and doing what we're told and just having, because God said so, that's why. And, and we don't, I think you can, you can take biblical Christianity and it can devolve down into a legalism. It can devolve down into a uh, self-righteous um, travesty that's not biblical. Okay? That, well, we, we have our list of rules and we do those because God tells us to. And they, they're bad people. Those unbelievers are bad people. They don't do what God wants them to. They don't do what we're doing. Okay? And we just kind of limit the contrast between the saved and the unsaved, we limit it to, to just a, a set of, of, of how we live, a set of rules or uh, lifestyle choices, if you will. And it's more than that. It's so much bigger than that. It's eternal in its scope. We don't just have verse 17 sitting there by itself. It's connected to verse 18. And there's a bigger picture in view. And, and really we should pay attention to verse 18 as the basis for why we follow the rules, why we obey God, why we live the way that we live. Surely there is a future your hope will not be cut off. On the eternal scale, on the eternal scale, we have eternity with God. So let's start living like it now. We have an eternity with God and it's not to be cut off and to disappear. That's what the unbelievers have. 
They're the ones that are cut off. They're the ones that disappear in the, not annihilation, but they, they, they are, are confined to the lake of fire for all eternity. We have a future, they don't. And so based on that eternal destiny, we have a present manner of walk. I hope that makes sense. The saved and the lost have an eternal contrast which should motivate a temporal contrast here and now. The difference in eternity should shape the difference in, in present time, in the here and now. The difference in eternity should shape a difference in our behavior here and now. So it's the eternity that makes the difference. It's the eternity that forms the motivation. I might, I might just take this backwards. Let's look at 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 11. <clears throat> you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Understand, this is what we are in Christ. Tremendous blessing, unmerited favor. None of us deserves this, but He gives us all this because we're in Christ so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. We are a redeemed people, a covenant people. We are a glorified people. And all of these blessings have a purpose. To God be the glory. Great things He has done. We get to proclaim His excellencies. We're not, he doesn't give us all these unspeakable blessings so that we can boast in ourselves. All of these blessings are so we can proclaim Him. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So, beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. It's the same pattern I'm saying these other passages are also addressing. The eternal glory is ours by grace through faith. It's a the eternal glory should be motivating the here and now. The eternal destiny should motivate the here and now. Ephesians 5.8 You were formerly darkness, now you are light in the Lord. You are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. It's what you are, walk that way. It's what you are. Didn't deserve it, didn't earn it. But this is now your eternal destiny. You are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. This eternal contrast, those guys are the children of darkness. You are now light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Again, Proverbs 23, 18. There is a future. Your hope will not be cut off. There is a future. And you're in it. Isn't that awesome? God the Father is glorifying Jesus Christ for all eternity and we're a part of that. There is a future. Your hope will not be cut off. Again, since we have that eternal destiny, it should shape, it should motivate our earthly walk. Proverbs 24, 20. Here's a contrast for you. There will be no future for the evil man. We have a future, they don't. We have a future, they don't. Let's, let's, let's put these side by side. You can't do this with a paper Bible.
Just split that up there and then here we go. Proverbs 23, 18 on the one hand. Proverbs 24, 20 on the other hand. And just put them side by side and recognize this truth for what it is. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. Amen. Praise God. That's me. There is no future. Ooh, that's bad. Okay? But that's not me. There will be no future for the evil man. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. See, we're light. They're not. They have a physical life, they have, which is a kind of a light. They have a physical life. They're in the image of God. They have a physical life. They have a, a temporal light, if you will, an earthly light. They're bearing the image of the earthly. The problem is they need to be bearing the image of the heavenly if, they're gonna, if that light is going to shine for all eternity. And sadly, it's not. And until they get that, that eternal life in Christ, then all they have is the light of their Adamic human life. And that lamp goes out. That lamp goes out. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. And so there's no future. That light is out and they're done. They're going to stand before the great white throne and some of them may be very religious. Some of them might be moral and religious and a bunch of do-gooders and, and, and they got all this human good production they think is going to count for something. And Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Even, even when they, they celebrate and proclaim their Lord, we did this, Lord, we did that, we did all these other things. He'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Their lamp will go out and they will be cast in the lake of fire for all eternity because the, all they have is, this, is, the, is the light of this life. The light of Bios life. And they, uh, they bear the image of the earthly, but they never get to bear the image of the heavenly because they reject Jesus Christ as their Savior. So there's a good contrast, and you look at those and you realize this is the, this is the difference between the saved and the lost. This is the difference between believers and unbelievers. There's no harmony, there's no concord, there's no fellowship, there's nothing in common. You can't be unequally yoked with this crowd. It's the difference in eternity. And I hope we get this. And I hope it motivates a, a compassion. I hope we can look upon the fields and see that they're white for the harvest. I hope that we, we have the, the, the evangelistic heart to seek and to save the lost. I hope none of this contrast ever motivates a, uh, a self-righteousness or a pride or any kind of an arrogance that says, ooh, we're better than you. Because we're no better than any of them. It's only by God's grace that we're delivered out of that. So I hope this uh, motivates us to be, to be speaking the truth in love. All right, the next one, and, and we're going to have to come back next week. Let me just give you a preview on this. Words of the wise, number 14. We move past 17 and 18, and now we're looking at Proverbs 23, 20. Proverbs 23, 20. Here we go. All right, yep, we wrapped up 17 and 18, and now we look at 19 through 21. Here's a triplet. This is, this is rare. 19, 20, 21. It's a triplet in, uh, in the poetry. Listen, my son, and be wise. Direct your heart in the way. Do not be with heavy drinkers of wine. Do not be with gluttonous eaters of meat. For the heavy drinker and the glutton will come to poverty, 
and drowsiness will clothe one with rags. And so this is a, a prohibition against being, a prohibition against being with. And it goes very well with what I was just saying a moment ago, with the unequally yoked. What happens when we associate with? What happens when we keep company with? What happens when we attempt to forge a commonality or a fellowship or a, a harmony or a like-mindedness? It's just not possible. And all of our attempts to forge that is really just defiling ourselves in this unequal yoke uh, circumstance. So do not keep company with the profligates. What God has designed, food, alcohol, if we use them in, in the moderation, if we enjoy them as God provides them, then, then praise God. When we abuse them, when we, when we take to excess, alcohol to excess, when we take food to excess, or anything, sex, there's other things that we can abuse in terms of God's provision. And when we rejoice in the provision God's provided within the parameters God's provided, praise God. When we abuse them, as, as Satan would direct us to abuse them, then that's when we get into these issues here as we talk about gluttony and drunkenness and fornication and all the, all the other abuses that God provides. So next week we're going to come back and get into this. Uh, we're going to see these do not be imperatives. We have here the, the al-tahi language that we're going to have to look at in the Hebrew. Al-tahi, this is the, um, like the, the, the language of I am, when God says I am, right? That's in the first person singular, I am. The verb hayah that speaks of existence, I am, and God's the only one that can say I am because he's the only absolute being that never had a beginning. But we, now, now the I am statement gets phrased in the second person and with respect to you are, and then it's negated with the al in front of it. So al in front of it means don't, and uh, don't be, don't be, do not be. And if you identify with this group, you very quickly are what you don't want to be. So we'll talk about that. That's coming up. Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and, and these passages, I think it's pretty neat to see how they come together. All right, so then that'll get us through 19, 20, 21. And then, um, yeah, we'll see. I'm looking at the, at the verses ahead. I'm looking at, I think, nine weeks remaining uh, between now and the end of the year, including one that we won't have a Proverbs class on December uh, 8th. On December 8th, there will not be a Proverbs class. So that means there's only eight more uh, Proverbs classes to the end of the year. So, all right, Lord willing, rapture pending. Thank you, Father, for this morning. Thank you for truth. Thank you for the blessings to show us these practical passages that apply, applied for Israel's day, apply in the church age. They're going to apply again in the tribulation and millennium. And these are timeless principles of wisdom for born-again believers to conduct ourselves for your glory. Father, you're the one that saved us. You're the one that's given us this eternal destiny. We want our life here and now to be reflections of that, of that eternal fear of the Lord. So thank you for being faithful, Father. Uh, continue to open our eyes, continue to guide us and teach us. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.